0: Welcome to the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, the Relationship Help Doctor, and I'm here for you. Today we're going to talk about ways to stop tolerating abuse. Abuse you may not even have recognized that is happening now or that happened earlier in your life. Maybe you'll hear something today that you really need to hear. It's my hope that you will. You're not alone. It's not your fault. You are not to blame. And I'll help you use that redirected energy to recover and to rediscover you, your values, your dreams, your desires, and then realize them in healthy ways and in healthy relationships at home and at work. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. So glad that you're here. If you're returning, glad to you're joining us again. If you haven't been with us before, I hope you'll make this a habit. The Relationship Help Show is every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. You can listen live at bbsradio.com. If you prefer to listen to the archives, go to bbsradio.com slash relationshiphelpshow or go to my website at relationshiphelpshow.com. Today we have a very important program because we're going to talk about bullying. And that happens in homes, it happens in schools, it happens on the playground, and it happens at work. I'm going to start today off by talking to you about how to handle a bully at work. Bullies at work can be very, very obvious, or they can be very subtle. They may be only bullying you, or they can be The topic of office conversation because they're bullying everybody. But you do need to have some understanding of why they bully and I'm going to give you that and I'm also going to give you tips for what to do to help it stop. My guest today is Dr. Nikesha Hammond and she is going to talk about children. She's an expert in that area. She's going to talk about bullying, going to talk about um, how children develop and how we can raise emotionally healthy children of course we all want to do that right so we really need to get some expert advice and Dr. Nakisha Hammond has that for us dealing with mental health concerns when we have children who are a little bit different or children who are going through change we have to be really aware of all of that looking at their sleep patterns looking at all the things that are going on with our kids and then in the last segment we're going to have today it happened to me and we're having a return guest Dr. Gary Salier, decided to come on the show and share what happened to him and how he had life with a hijackal and how that changed him and made him think about things and how that also led to him wanting to help other people so really good segments Remember that you can always get more information about my work at com, or visit my YouTube channel, For Relationship Help. Stay tuned. Going to be a great show today. Hello, this is Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are these stories and questions on today's show sounding familiar to you? Are you ready to say no more to the abuse from toxic people in your life? I'm so glad. You matter and you deserve to have real love, true love in your life. Love from yourself and love from others. Not that demeaning, discounting, and dismissive masquerade that a hijackal pretends is love. I can help you regain yourself, your self-esteem, your self-confidence after a life with a hijackal, whether it was your partner, an ex, a parent, or a child. Let's work together now. For individual sessions or small group coaching, visit 4relationshiphelp.com join. Talk soon. Have you ever had a bully in your workplace? Maybe you didn't think about them as a bully, but they were a difficult person. You walked on eggshells around them. You weren't certain what mood they'd be in when they came in. They took up way too much of your energy. Maybe you went to work for a company and you were really excited. And just days later, it started. The bully at work started showing her colors, defining her territory, and stomping the ground. You know, like bullies do. And you thought, help, I thought it was going to be so good, so what do I do? And yes, I said her, but it could easily be he. It doesn't really matter. We expect bullies on a school playground, or we hear about it as part of gang behavior, or prison even, But unfortunately, it's an all-too-common complaint in the workplace. When I'm hired by a company now as a consultant, but previously I would do more hands-on work, the task often entailed managing the bully, that hostile, aggressive person who was running as rampant as a rhino. And of course, people brought me in because I wrote a book called Wrestling Rhinos, Conquering Conflict in the Wilds of Work. So recently, I met a rhino who introduced herself to me in the initial interview as, "I'm a harsh personality and I could be hard on people." Whoa! I'm really my my ears perked up. I'm sure my jaw dropped open. And, and it wasn't from the self-knowledge this woman displayed, but rather from her blatant admission that she was aware of it, and she seemed completely uninterested in doing anything to improve her approach. She was kind of proud of being a bully. And like people so often do, it seemed she thought that announcing to me that she was a bully was a way of giving herself permission to act like one, and if you walk around thinking of yourself as a harsh personality like she did, you're very likely to demonstrate it on a regular basis. And she did. This woman, I'll call her Leslie, she had a few traits you might recognize. The first day I was in the company, she stalked up to my desk uh, I was the general manager, acting general manager at the time. She maintained eye contact all the way as she approached me. And then she demanded, what are you going to do about reconfiguring the office? When I responded that it was under consideration and would be happening soon, but not immediately, she asked again. <laughs> and then I said the same thing. She got the same answer, so she rolled her eyes and walked away. Over a few weeks of seeing Leslie roll her eyes and dismiss people with a wave of her hand, or hear her backbiting sarcasm and her definitely know-it-all responses, and watching her hostile, aggressive behavior and its effect on the office, there was no possibility that the behavior could go unchecked. It was toxic to the productivity and to the health of everyone, me too, as well as to the profitability of the company. And, of course, there was a problem. Nothing could be as simple as simply firing Leslie. The owner of the company didn't want to fire her because she believed she brought a unique combination of experience and expertise to the company. A classic dilemma in small companies. It was all too frequent that a person with no regard for either co-workers or the company holds too much information. And the boss comes to think of them as indispensable. And all the while, that person is holding everyone else hostage. That's a big mistake. I mean, I saw people who would take a sick day when they'd had enough of her overbearing nastiness. There's only so much people can take. So productivity suffered. Clients were lost. The cost of keeping such an individual employed were just getting too high, and it was compounded because when a person takes a sick day to get away from Leslie, who does the work? Of course, everybody else is supposed to pick up the slack, but no, of course, that wouldn't be Leslie. She refused to have her workload enlarged for any reason. So, listening to her with customers, it was a lot of phone work, and it was not a surprise to learn that what the owner thought of as her hard-nosed negotiating was simply bullying, and there's a big difference. Although we often think of bullies as big people dominating smaller folks, they truly are little people in every way. A bully at work is habitually cruel to other people that they think are weaker than themselves. A bully, he'll use brow-beating language and behavior. He'll even use his size to get up too close and personal with people to intimidate them. But here are some insights into what's going on with bullies. All bullies, and in particular, these ones that I was working, this one that I was working with, um, but all bullies have a fear of being wrong. And so they demonstrate that by being know-it-alls. So they're often condescending and patronizing and dismissive. They also have a fear of not being able to meet the needs of others, and it causes them to never want to hear what other people think, feel, or want. They, they have an inability and an unwillingness to control their anger, or their tongue in Leslie's case, and it causes them to make everything your fault as it couldn't possibly be be theirs. Is this is beginning to sound a little familiar. It may be somebody in your workplace. It may be somebody in your family. So paradoxically, their self-esteem is too fragile to handle the possibility of being wrong. And their need to control you demonstrates their fear of being unable to control themselves. And this overreaching desire for power over other people comes from a fear of being insignificant themselves. So their attempts to boost their own flailing self-esteem is fed by treating other people disrespectfully or thoughtlessly or offhandedly. And their fear of other people causes them to assault character and focus on weaknesses and be the poster child for intimidation. And unfortunately, These are all manifestations of a poor self-image, kind of coupled with a lack of self-awareness and very, very poor people skills. So the question was, what did I do about Leslie? So a good beginning when handling a bully is to begin with compassion. And that might be the last thing you're considering. (laughs) You may not be thinking about compassion, but you... You just kind of truly want to beat them over the head with a blunt object and maybe considerable force, but (laughs) beginning with an understanding of that inherent weakness that the bully is projecting and the causes for it will help you manage them. And bullies need to be managed because they can't and won't manage themselves, yet everybody shies away from managing them. So they're like errant teenagers. They're just allowed to run wild. And no one wants to say no to them because the consequences are nasty. And that's the operating system of the bully. Don't cross me or I'll make your life miserable. They're miserable and they want everybody else to go down with them. So bullies appear self-confident, strong, impervious because they intimidate weaker people. And they may even be so blind to their arrogance that they try to intimidate anyone as Leslie did with me. Not such a great move, Leslie. So if you vacillate, placate, or submit to a bully, or you respond with fear or rage, she feels, like Leslie did, she felt her point was proven, you are inferior and you deserve to be abused or taken down or written off. So you have three choices when you're working with a bully. You can quit. You can get sick or you can manage yourself with the bully, unless, of course, you own the company and you can get rid of them. So here are some tips for managing a bully and and really listen to these because you want to feel that you are not lacking knowledge and you want to feel empowered to step up. So here's some tips. Redeem your own self-esteem and establish strong boundaries. That's the only way to gain the respect of a bully. And then just be friendly and self-confident and calm. Never cower. Never avoid eye contact. Just be fully present. And it doesn't help to walk into a brick wall, so avoid a clash of wills. Keep things at the information level, not at the emotional level. Listen to them well. It doesn't cost you anything and you can agree with him or her in part. You'll find something you can agree with and then put forward your views clearly. You want to be strong and firm and assertive without being aggressive. And you want endeavor to get the bully to consider alternative views and avoid directly challenging him or her. So that means you have to be prepared before you talk with the bully. You have to know what your desired outcome of the conversation is and stay focused on that. And then be willing to acknowledge when the bully is right. A bully respects your ability to see his or her strengths. I know it's counterintuitive, but if you do these things, listen to them again, replay this part. And if you do this, you will feel more empowered. You will feel stronger and more confident because anger and threats and harassment, humiliation, ridicule. These are all tools of a workplace bully or a bully anywhere, just like they are on the playground. That woman, Leslie, she majored in all four had more. I'm sure she did. She was just, had this incredible delight in her ability to intimidate. And that joy that she took in having those around her dread the possibilities she would erupt gave her power. She felt powerful. And unfortunately, no one was contradicting her until I came along. So if you have a Leslie on your team, be assertive. And if you need to shore up your conflict and anger management skills, do so. The workplace is no place for a bully because the cost is too high. So don't let it take a toll on you so that you're the one who's paying the cost. And if you want a bunch of insights how to do this, just go to Amazon and get a copy of my book, Wrestling Rhinos, Conquering Conflict in the Wilds of Work. And also, visit my website at 4 Relationship Help. Lots of things there for you. And also my YouTube channel, For Relationship Help. I hope this helps you. Talk soon. Life as a couple can be exciting and enriching. You both feel supported, known, heard, and appreciated. You know you're safe. Is that what you're experiencing? Does your partner have your back? can you be vulnerable safely? Do you trust each other fully? Would you say you are emotionally intimate? If not, things can get much better. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, and I work with couples just like you all over the world by video conferencing. If you want a world-class relationship, learn how now. Visit forrelationshiphelp.com join, and schedule a time to work together. Let's talk soon. For relationship slash join. Welcome to the Relationship Help Show. You know that this is Dr. Roberta Shaler, and this is the segment where we have a guest. And I'm so excited today because I've been waiting to talk to Dr. Nikisha Hammond. We're going to talk about something we've never talked about on the Relationship Help Show. And that's the relationship that we have with our child and the school and what happens when a child has difficulties, what happens when, from the school's point of view, the the parents are at difficulty, and what we can do about that. So let me just tell you a little bit. As you can see, Dr. Hammond is sitting here, and I'll just tell you a little bit about her. She is a psychologist, a speaker, an author, and owner of Hammond Psychology and Associates. She consults with the media to increase public education about Mental health issues. So, we're definitely on the right path with having you with us today. She's been featured on NBC, ABC, and CBS, as well as in various magazines and radio shows throughout the country. And she has an exciting new project, a new TV show, Parenting Explained with Dr. Hammond, and it's set to start this year. So, if you want to learn more about her as we're speaking, go to drnakeshamond.com and let me spell that DR. N-E-K-E-S-H-I-A-H-A-M-M-O-N-D.com. Welcome to the show, Nikisha. Thanks
1: so much for having me.
0: It's exciting to talk to someone who's also been in the education system. As I was saying to you before the show, uh, my last task in the education system was an admin at a public high school for at-risk teenagers. So the things we're going to talk about today are definitely part of that. Tell us about generally what it is that you bring to the media to help them raise
1: awareness. Right. A lot of times, many of the questions are, are what you were just discussing of how to really help children and how to help parents and how to help families because as we've seen definitely on the news, there are children unfortunately that are dying by due to bullying, and they call it bully side, and they're taking their lives, and parents are distressed, and we are stressed out um, all over. So really, just learning the tools, though, as parents, of how we can help our children to be healthier, to be happier.
0: Hmm. Well, bullying is a big problem, and yes, children are dying, but way more children are dying inside. You know, definitely, They're just seg- segmented, isolated, marginalized, and their ability to develop any positive self-esteem is definitely damaged. So what do you tell parents when they come to you or they ask the question, what can I do about bullying?
1: So there's a lot that parents can do about bullying. I mean, number one, the most important thing is to understand school district and what the rules are if you will because every school district is different Um, so to make sure you know who to talk to to understand though that the research is showing that children are afraid understandably to talk to their parents about bullying they're afraid to even bring it up just because your child is not saying they're being bullied doesn't mean that they're not being bullied so there's a lot of warning signs and there's a lot of red flags and we can talk about that later on but there's a lot of things to look for um, that do indicate that your child may be uh, bullied and really to advocate appropriately um, for your child to make sure, number one, that they are safe um, and that they're physically safe and also emotionally safe. If you will.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's absolutely true. And I just want to pick up on what you said on being an advocate for your child. Because many children are very fortunate. They have parents who are appropriately advocating for them. Some children have no advocate. They see the school as a babysitting service, and everything is the school's problem, and they really are not involved. And then there are some, we all know, the helicopter parents who are overly involved. <laughs> right. So, so it, it's, a, it's an issue, but with the bullying, when, when a parent does want to know how can I help and they recognize that there is bullying going on and their child has disclosed that, how do you help the parent discuss
1: or make changes in that situation? Yeah, so the number one thing, there's a couple things. Number one, most children, the younger children in particular, the elementary, early middle school ages, A lot of times, a lot of children I've met, they don't know how to react to a bully. Like, they literally don't. We as adults, if someone says something silly to us, then we think it's silly. We know what to say back. But as a child and as a young, well, a preteen, they don't know what to say. So sitting down and literally role-playing with them, if someone called you stupid, what would you say? If someone said, your shoes are ugly... What would you say? I mean, it's, it's those type of things that are triggering kids and they are taking them to heart. Um, understand also, number two, that children tend to believe everything their peers say, even though it's not true. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and it's so hard. I've met so many children that they're in the gifted program. They're brilliant. But when a peer says that they're dumb or they're stupid, they believe that about them mm-hmm. and they start to internalize that. So understand that they, it's, a, it's just a very strong impact for a peer to say something to them even if they're, if it's not true. And the third thing is really to make sure that your child knows what their strengths are so that even if a lot of times they show children with disabilities are two to three times likely to be bullied, but even if there are things that are different from other people, there are so many strengths that they have. So remind them what those strengths are and that way if they're being made fun of because they can't read well, well, guess what? They may be the best person in sports or music or arts or something else. So remind them what their strengths are because that is what's going to help them when you're not with them 24-7 in school when they're dealing with bullying.
0: And, you know, that's really good advice uh, for all of us. <laughs> I think everybody can benefit from remembering what your your strengths are and knowing that you know you practice what to say when somebody says something to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about younger children and the brain development and prior to the development of the prefrontal lobes. Yeah. And these children don't have rational, linear, sequential thought. Everything is just coming in at them in a sensory perception. And, you know, I remember two little girls that I was asked to work with after their family separated. And they were seven and five. And I said to yeah. them, Do you know why your daddy doesn't live at your house anymore? And the little one said, which is a prime example of this, she said, oh, yes, it's because I left my bicycle behind his car. No, it's so sad. Yes. And so that's an example that we need to keep in mind because the child thinks things are their fault. Until yes. they're somewhere between seven and ten, they don't have that external reference. They're every, they reference
1: everything from within, don't they? They, they do. They absolutely do. And, and a lot of times we make that mistake as adults or as parents or teachers, that we expect them to process information like an adult. And like you said, they don't even have the brain capacity. If you are five, six years old, you there is no way, no matter how bright you are, that you can process information like an adult. You cannot reason like an adult. You can't process like an adult. You can't react the same um, logically as an adult can. Like you said, that is a great example, and I see that all the time. Um, in my practice as well, that it's it's very sad, actually, because when parents find out, is that what they're really thinking? And it's like, yeah, they thought it was their fault, because like you said, you left a bicycle out or something like that. They tie things together that are not logical, but in their brain, it makes sense. That's right.
0: And at their level of brain development, they're the center of the universe, everything goes out from them. And they can't put things in sequential order. So they can't say that, I left my my bike behind the car, Daddy yelled at me, but daddy 's not happy with Mummy, and maybe that 's why he lives right. somewhere else. they can 't do that
1: <laughs>
0: and so we have to be very aware of that and if you 're living in a situation where you have perhaps a partner who has is, is you know I call them hijackles, a relentlessly difficult, toxic person it 's very difficult for a hijackle to accept that they have a child who could be bullied. And so they often defend that child in public and bully them in
1: private. Have you experienced that? Definitely, definitely. And, and, it, and it's so hard. I mean, it really is hard as a parent. We want what is best for our children. But like you said, to, to get to the point to realize that either your child is being bullied, is a victim of bullying, or in some cases your child is a bully, and is hurting, emotionally hurting, or physically hurting someone else can be really hard to to swallow sometimes and to realize. But the most important thing, again, I mean, we're talking about saving lives at this point. Um, And I've always said when, I I mean, back when I was growing up, I don't, not that that didn't happen, but I don't recall any peers that were taking their lives due to bullying. But now with social media and cyberbullying and everything, you have access to the internet 24-7 pretty much. It's a, it is a different world. We're in a digital world. It is different. So we can't compare too much, even though it's hard when, you know, back when we grew up or our grandparents grew up, we cannot do that because it's a different world. And they, children and teens have a different set of demands and stressors right now.
0: We they certainly do. You know, yeah. it's a very different world. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was working in the school system, and I stopped, I stopped working there quite a long time ago, 20 years ago, yeah. Um, and then their there, kids that were at risk were marginalized, mm-hmm. but they weren't the kids that were bull, bullied. They were the kids that were bullies. And they would then fight among themselves for a pecking order and do all kinds of things, and they (laughs) that were nasty. And they would, you know, I remember one child came in on a Monday morning. I think he was fourteen or something. And I said, "What did you do over the weekend?" And he said, "I stole three cars." And I said, "Oh, why did you do that?" He said, "I was bored." You know, there's the starting point for Monday morning. Yeah. And you're right. We have had a big shift without social media and people being able to bully online and badger online and tell lies online. Mm-hmm. Uh, our society already had enough of this, but you add this in and then you add in the component of these ways that they're finding out that they can go and shoot a whole lot of people at once. Yeah. And And so that's something that would have been unthinkable before. They might've, Well, that's not true. They might have thought it, but they would not have planned it. They wouldn't have access to how to make a bomb. They wouldn't have had access to where to get guns. And uh, now the world has changed a great deal. And back in the day, these kids that had really difficult homes where they had been badly damaged were called emotionally disturbed children. Mm -hmm. And now we don't seem to have that
1: category, do we? Yeah, we don't we don't have that category. We, I mean, we have different labels, uh, if you will. And and what's happened though, what I found is that children now are overdiagnosed, let's say, with ADHD. So now Uh everything's ADHD. And I do have evaluations for ADHD, and I do believe, and I know there's a huge controversy about it. I do believe in it. However, I definitely know that there is a huge over diagnosis going on with that label if you go and, and as you mentioned there are children that are really suffering from trauma from depression from anxiety from dealing with a parent maybe with a personality disorder or something else in the home and automatically there's a label that's what there's ADHD and let's give them medication to fix this and that's not always what's going on
0: I'm so happy to hear you say that because 20 years ago, one of the last conversations I had was I had all the parents in, in at once to talk with them, and the conversation was about the fact that they were so excited that they had gone and been diagnosed as ADHD, and now the whole family was on medication,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I was just horrified because, A, clearly they weren't ADHD. They were trying to excuse their poor behaviors. Secondly, yeah. most of the children involved were not ADHD but had never had adequate parenting. Mm-hmm. And so they, they didn't know how to behave. They had no sense of things. What do you think it is that's causing this uh, ease of getting diagnosed and, worse, ease of receiving medication?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, to be frank and honest, um, between insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, there's a huge push. It's uh, Unfortunately, I hate to admit this, and it just drives me crazy to even say this, but um, there, it's, a, it's a profit margin situation. So right now, all over the world, basically, there are major companies that are making money off of uh, medicating children unnecessarily. Um, they know that they're doing that, but it's about the money and it's about profit, which is wrong, very wrong. Of course, we know that. Um, but nonetheless, they're very um, large companies, big, um, big, uh, well, large companies. And they have a, basically a lot of pull in government and all sorts of things. So it's a, really a national crisis and really, I think, a international crisis um, that's happening um, but my hope is that when we learn about what is going on and learn that the fact of the matter is even if you do, have, even if your child or you have ADHD, that there are so many other things you can do before starting medication. Um, but the problem is medication is a very quick fix. And mm-hmm. sometimes you can go in and see a physician for five minutes and now you're on medication versus taking the time to understand, like you mentioned, what could be going on with this child or what can be going on with this adult. There's about twenty things that I could list that it could be. <laughs> <mean.
0: laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I so agree with you and I know that that many times a disordered parent of any kind uh, is is unaware that they have anything wrong with them. A hijackal for certain would deny to the ends of the earth that there's anything wrong with them because their abject fear is that there's something wrong with them. Therefore, they protect themselves by thinking that they're perfect and above everyone else. So when we get a parent like that for a child, particularly a child who's being bullied, we have a terrible dichotomy. So we need to talk about that further in segment two. This is Dr. Roberta Shayler. You're listening to the Relationship Help Show. And for further information about Dr. Nakisha Hammond's work, go to drnakishahammond.com. and about my work, go to forrelationshiphelp.com. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Dr. Roberta Shaler. Handling hijackles is exhausting. It's never-ending. An endless cycle of crazy-making, alienation, and constant drama. And cycles are difficult to step out of. I know, because I've been there too. And that's why I reach out to you to offer the insight, skills, and strategies you need to heal. My small group programs, Handling Hijackles and Hijackal Recovery and Rediscovery, will shortcut your journey to healing to save your sanity, and to stopping the crazy making. Visit forrelationshiphelp.com slash join now, and let's talk soon. Welcome to part two of this wonderful interview with Dr. Nikisha Hammond. We're talking about ADHD at the minute but we're also talking about hijackles and hijackals who have children and we also want to talk about the fact that sometimes what's going on with the child are precursors to becoming a hijackle so let's just talk about finishing our conversation from part one uh, which is we've got we've got this Problem that is happening is showing up regularly with this over medication, people not taking responsibility for their behavior, not wanting to own their behavior, not wanting to teach their children better behavior. What do you think the alternative is to medication that we should consider first?
1: So, I think the alternative is definitely um, counseling. Well, first, well, the first step really should be an evaluation, a comprehensive evaluation. So, it's not a five minute fill out a questionnaire and you start medication. It should be taking the time to see how is a child doing socially? How are they doing emotionally? Are there any learning issues? What are they like? What's their personality like? It should be a couple of hours um, that professionals are spending with children and talking to parents and talking to teachers and really putting together what is going on with the child. Um, And then the second step is really to get some type of intervention. It could be individual therapy. It could be, as you mentioned, if there's a family issue, family therapy. Maybe the parents need therapy if they're open to it. Um, Maybe there's a social skills issue. So there's a lot of different types of therapies um, that can occur before starting medication. And actually the American Academy of Pediatrics for the little ones, the three, four, five age group, they actually do not recommend starting with medication, even though we're still doing that. Um, But they do (laughs) highly recommend to start with therapy first.
0: Well, I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that, Nikisha, because these little people have no say in anything, and they don't know what they're doing, and their brain development is so minimal um, yeah. you know, compared to what it's going to be when it stops growing at 25. And notice that, everybody. I said your brain is not fully formed until you're 25. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. when you're, you're that 18-year-old going out for a job, and you're absolutely sure you know everything, you don't. You don't. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> but but it's so it's so important that the people look at this. It's not that we're selling therapy in the way that people sell drugs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This is a helping profession. It only goes to the people who need the help, and to be able to have a. A, a communication and a connection with other humans who can give voice to what you're maybe experiencing to give you options to say to a child, does it feel like this or does it feel like this or does it feel like this and or none of those? And you can help the child give voice to what's going on. Don't you find that to be important? It's,
1: yeah, it's, it's everything. And connection is so, so important. So with anything, I mean, with any field, you want to find the person that connects with your child or connects with you that's very important there's numerous studies out there that have shown the benefits of a child feeling connected to someone and going back to your question earlier about bullying I also wanted to add that when children feel connected to someone it may not necessarily be mother or father or someone in their household it could be a teacher a coach a mentor or whomever but when they really feel connected to someone and they feel like someone cares about them they have a better chance of dealing with bullying and they have actually a better chance of, um, adulthood outcomes.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so
1: that's so important to have a therapist. There have been, I, I do all evaluations now, but in the beginning of my career, back when I did therapy, I mean, really, there were some children that uh, as a therapist, I was sort of functioning in, as, in their parent role and their parent admit like, I don't have time.
2: I, you know, mm-hmm. there,
1: whatever. there was a lot going on in the family and, they were the person that I connected to, and, were, and I believed in them, and it was, it was very healing for them. Mm-hmm. So, so important.
0: Yeah, it is so important. And it's also important to be able to recognize that sometimes the parent doesn't have what the child needs. Yes. So you have to work with the parent to, sh- to demonstrate to them because they never received it. Mm-hmm. They don't know what it is to be loved and accepted and not neglected or, or to be praised and encouraged or strengthened. And so how are they going to pass that on to their child? And mm-hmm. that's where you, we can be really effective in a therapeutic situation is to be able to create a dynamic that is healthier in mm-hmm. that particular nuclear family, even if the one the parent came from is dysfunctional. So, everybody gets some skills. Everybody gets a little bit more love, a little bit more information, and understanding that they have choices in the way that they behave. And I think that's really clear and key. So, let's talk about something that I really want your take on because I remember working in the very beginning of my career, I did research in what was then called a home for emotionally disturbed children. Mm-hmm. And there was a little boy in there, and I know that there are little boys like this and little girls like this everywhere now, but he really stood out to me because from the time he was four or five, his fascination with fire and damage was enormous, and nobody did anything but laugh at him. No. And so he, he was with us for a long time because he had no foundation of appropriate.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but he also prob- was fetal alcohol. And so if with fetal alcohol syndrome. We had that combined. We had the home life or lack thereof. I mean, it yeah. was a home life, but it certainly wasn't effective or productive so what do you say about children like that how do we identify them early and what track should we get
1: them on yeah so definitely I really all strongly believe and they say it take the village to raise a child but a, a really a community effort as you mentioned the most ideal situation of course is if parent a parent or parent can say you know what I am not fit necessarily to raise my child in an emotionally healthy way so i need help and if hopefully parents can at least get to that point and get someone else involved it could be i mean there's so many stories i've heard of, where neighbors are getting involved and really helping out or a teacher has really become involved or someone from their place of worship is really involved and they're really hoping to take care of their child they may still it's not a situation where they necessarily have to leave the home in an abusive situation or anything like that but just emotionally they are not able to give in the way that they know that their child is able to give. So getting people involved that you know would be healthy, would be positive role models for your child, which is important. Someone that cares about them, someone that's going to tell them like how much help build their self-worth is very important. So really, you know, building that world, if, if you will. And, and I have, I've met parents like that, which I totally commend because it is hard, as you mentioned, to say, you know what, I cannot, emotionally deal with this right now. I can't do this. The
0: parenting thing, it's hard. Well, the parenting thing is hard no Mm -hmm. matter what. Exactly. (laughs) And then to be able to say, I don't come with the tools and I – I could read them in a book, but they don 't mean anything to me because i haven 't experienced them so how do i How do I get some help and Many times that 's inviting somebody into your home too you know mm-hmm. i I raised my three kids mostly by myself because I left a hijackle um, mm-hmm. but it it really was something that I could do. I could have someone over with their children and model. Mm -hmm. what my children were receiving and, and in the same, at the same time help the other person to feel that they could do it too. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's important, but sometimes we do have these children who have disturbances and Mm -hmm. we do have to work with them very, very carefully. And it's important to identify. So what would you say we should look for in a child that's going to need help and is not
1: ADHD? Yeah, so so some of the warning signs that maybe a child has uh, a mental health condition, if you will, is really looking at how are they doing as far as sleeping. They may be sleeping too much or sleeping too little mm-hmm. or just a major change in their sleep patterns. Um, also eating, the same thing I've seen kids that start to gain a lot of weight or lose a lot of weight. Um, some children are very vocal, actually, and they will say, I want to kill myself. I want to hurt myself. I just feel like dying. They will make those statements. Um, versus some children won't say anything at all, and you won't have any idea what's going on with them emotionally. But taking those comments seriously is so important. Um, I, I cannot stress that enough. And making sure that you get help if your child is saying, "I want to hurt myself," or you find that they are hurting themselves. Yes. Because a lot of kids now they're cutting or burning or you know doing different things and had a lot of conversation with a lot of parents about that. It doesn't always mean they want to kill themselves, but that is a way, it's a way of coping, an unhealthy way, but a way of coping um, and hurting themselves. And Um,
0: it's also beyond a way, which is coping. mm -hmm. Many times I've spoken to kids who are cutting or doing something and they say it's the only way that I can feel.
1: Yep. Mm -hmm. Right?
0: It's what allows me to feel something because I'm numbed out. Yeah. I'm are depressed or I've gone so internal that the mm-hmm. only way that I can feel something is physical pain.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and that's a real sign. And we have to watch for that. So if you see a teenager who's constantly wearing, you know, long clothing on their arms and their legs, make yeah. sure that you find a way to just check that out as they seem to be depressed. What else were you going to say before I cut yes. you off?
1: <laughs> no, that was a really valid point. I, I definitely agree with that um, for sure um, because a lot of children who cut tend to hide it, obviously. Um, so making sure to check is perfect. Um, and also really looking to see if they start changing their, just the things that they used to find pleasurable, if whether it's video games or playing outside or being with their friends or whatever it is, and all of a sudden they've stopped doing that, you see them more and more in their room. Um, And withdrawing more is a huge sign. And I don't mean the teens that, you know, don't want to spend as much time with parents. That's typical for teens. But really you're starting to see they're withdrawing. They don't want to eat dinner anymore um, with you. They are not wanting to spend any time with their friends, not wanting to play video games that they loved or something like that. That's a huge red flag as well. And then in school, Mm -hmm. lastly in school, is really looking to see if you start to notice they were A, B, C student. Now they're getting D's and F's. So their Mm -hmm. grades are really starting to decline. They're not turning in homework. Their teachers are complaining about their behavior because that's how kids really communicate is through their behavior. So Mm -hmm. those are a lot of red flags to look for.
0: Yes, and and that brings up another topic that maybe we could spend two or three minutes on, which is what do you – What do you make up? What should a parent think about when they see their child engaging in attention-seeking behavior?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's tough because kids do that for a lot of different reasons, of course, Uh, but really and truly, there's a void that they have inside, and that can come from a lot of different places. A lot of children that I've met, the void comes from, well, most times dealing with the situation at home that a parent may not even be aware of that they're dealing with. So in the midst of whether it's a divorce, whether it's a loss of job for um, a parent, whether it's a major move, uh, someone died in the family. I mean, there's, Mm -hmm. there's so many things that sometimes as adults, we forget that the kids are still coping with this too, and they're dealing with it in a different way than us. Everyone copes with grief differently. Everyone copes with loss differently. So they can still be having that void for whatever it is that's happening in their life, but not really know how to express it. But it'll it'll come out in a different way. So and that might be a decline in grades or or something else going on, but mm-hmm. definitely will show. In some way. And,
0: and I think to add to what you said, um, Nakisha, is that there is a a uh, coping with change. Mm-hmm. Okay. We live in a very fluid society, and we're often. You know, we recognize that kids like to stay at the same school. They like to have their friends and things like that. But we live in a very mobile society. Mm -hmm. And many times, a lot of change will create a lot of chaos in the life of children. We have to be very careful about that, too. And I know that that's a big consideration when, you know, my work is with the partners and the exes and the adult children of these relentlessly difficult, toxic folks I call hijackals. And Mm -hmm. the decision to leave to to separate the family is a huge decision it is huge, it's huge. And, and it's
1: not always easy it's it's really not no fact, it's not easy for anybody no it's not <laughs> it's and not there's at all.
0: And there's huge risks involved and upheaval. And depending on the age of the children, as we said in segment one, if they're before they have prefrontal lobe development, they're going to think that they had something to do with why the family is separating. And the teenager is concerned that they're not being considered as a human being. And there are all kinds of things going on. They didn't get to make a choice and they're blaming and they've got to find someone to blame.
1: Yeah. and
0: And that's all very natural. But we have to know how to cope with it. So what tips would you give to a parent who had made the decision to separate and take the children with them on how to manage
1: the child's anger? Yeah, so so children express anger in different ways. For some children, they express it outwardly. Um, so that could mean lashing out. I don't know if they expect, but if you start to hear I mean, verbally, that they're attacking you or they're attacking their other parent. Um, if they're now more verbal with their siblings, maybe, or with their teachers, um, some children you know, physically act out, obviously, with anger. And then some children internalize it, and you don't know what is really going on with them because they're not expressing it outwardly. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, helping them cope with the anger has to deal with having some heart-to-heart conversations with them do not expect them because nine times out of ten they won't to come to you and sit down with you and say i really want to talk to you about the separation that just happened (laughs) no not like (laughs) but i've had a lot of parents that say well they didn't bring it up so i thought they were okay and it's like nope they're not um they're really struggling with that so recognize that you have to start the conversation and even if the biggest piece of advice i can give is even if they have the eye roll and they're like i'm fine Nothing, you know, nothing affects them, especially if they're a teenager. Still keep having the heart-to-heart because in that conversation, they may not want to talk about it, which is fair, but three conversations later, they may open up to you a little bit. So don't stop having the heart-to-heart conversation. That's so important to do check-ins. I call them check-ins. Yeah, and
0: I would add to that that if the child is not coming forward or forthcoming with that, you can make a statement about yourself. Like Mm -hmm. I've found that there's a lot of change, and I've had to think a lot of things through, and I've had a Mm -hmm. lot of feelings,
1: you Mm -hmm. know, and
0: maybe give an example. Sometimes that'll get the child to start talking, particularly if they're a teenager, because Mm -hmm. now they feel like you're talking a little bit peer-to-peer for a moment. Yeah. We're both going through this same experience. We're both feeling some things that will probably be similar. So let's okay. talk about those ones.
1: Yeah. And and in particular with the teens, I mean, I've had families that, I mean, get creative because, I mean, teens are a different uh, species, if you will, sometimes. But, but get creative. I've had families that their teens do not want to sit down and have heart-to-heart. So instead... <laughs> They text each other, but you know what? You're still communicating. So they will text. I mean, they really have a heart to heart by text message. But fine, that works. I had one family that they, um, anyways, it was a mom and a the daughter. They would write like sort of in a journal, like write back and forth with each other, and just you know, kind of leave it there because she was not comfortable speaking out loud. But she would write like three page letters to her mom, which is fine. Like as long as Excellent. you're communicating, great. So yeah. fine that could be a way, <laughs> especially with teens.
0: Great. Well. This is really important information that we're bringing. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. I know you've written a book everybody will want to get called The Practical Guide to Raising Emotionally Healthy Children, and another book that seems to be on its way to us, The ADHD Explained, What Every Parent Needs to Know. So lots of great information from Dr. Nikesha Hammond. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so
1: much. It's been a pleasure.
0: If you want to know more about Dr. Nikesha Hammond, go to her website. Strangely enough, it's called Dr. Nikesha Hammond, D-R-N-E-K-E-S-H-I-A-H-A-M-M-O-N-D.com. And get her book, The Practical Guide to Raising Emotionally Healthy Children, and look for the others as well. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, the Relationship Help Doctor. If you've heard things that you want to know more of or you have a request, you can contact me through my website at forrelationshiphelp.com. That's f-o-r relationshiphelp.com, Or you can go to my YouTube channel at forrelationshiphelp, youtube.com slash forrelationshiphelp. I look forward to having you here again with us on the Relationship Help Show. Thanks so much. Talk soon. No matter what's happening right now, life can get better. If you have a good relationship, it can become great. If your relationship is in trouble, we can find a solution. The good news is that it's in your hands to start. The not-so-good news is that it takes time, new insights and skills, and a whole bunch of willingness. But who would settle for less? Not you, right? Good. You want to feel seen, heard, known, accepted, and appreciated. You want honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability, too. Read my book, Kaizen for Couples, available for download at couplesbook.com. Start there, and let's talk soon. Welcome to the segment, It Happened to Me. Why I created this is I want you to know you're not alone. When we're with a difficult or disturbing or a toxic person, we get kind of isolated. In my terms, they do a good job of culling us from the herd to make us feel like we don't count, that we're off stuck in a corner somewhere, and I want you to know you're so not you're so not. So I created this feature, It Happened to Me. And today my guest is Dr. Gary Salier. It happened to him. So Gary, tell us something about your story and how it happened to you.
2: Well, I think what I'd like to share is, you know, I've told people before, it's in the book and everything, that, you know, I had this borderline mother. And she was very violent. Uh, my first memory is jumping up and down on a bed and saying no. And, you know, there's no headlines tomorrow in the San Francisco Chronicle. are going to say two-year-old says no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not, you're going to see that. But it was for my mother and she slapped me as hard as she could. I actually careened off a bedpost. I had those bedposts and I hit a wall about five point, uh, feet up the wall. And I remember thinking, I'll never say no again. Mm. Now, Later on, this is the sort of catch-22 that you get when you're borderlines. And there's a, and this time, my identity got involved, because a two-year-old doesn't have any identity. But this one was, I began to define me. The abuse began to define who I was. It was in second grade. Uh, no, it was in third grade. And I, was, I, was, I came up from school at the beginning, and I was talking about two girls who were really, really, really good at math. And they were the math tutors, and I was a science tutor for Mrs. Graham, right? And they were African-American. And we called them colored people at that time. And I said, and we've got these two colored girls. And my mother, who was extremely prejudiced, turned to me and says, Gary, in my house, you call them niggers. You got that straight? Now, if that word offends you, especially if you're African-American, I apologize. But that's this is what I was dealing with. And I remember thinking, mom must be having a bad day. Everybody knows you don't call black people that. So I, I kind of passed it off. Well, three weeks later, I come home, and I begin to talk about Diane and Teresa again. And I call, uh, and I use the word colored. And she goes, you will call them. And she uses the, the N word. And she literally throws me over the kitchen table, grabs one of the kitchen table's uh, chairs, and begins to beat me, saying, you will call them. Oh. And she hit me five times in the middle. And I remember being in a turtle position, and I thought she broke my ribs, and she's screaming. But down there, some part of me said, this is so wrong. It's so unfair. And I made a decision. What I said was, you can bend me, old woman, but you will never break me. Now, there was an... And at that point in time, I decided she could not have my soul, which was the really, really wonderful, good, and redeeming thing. However, years later, when I tell this to my therapist, they listen, and then they say to me, after I get to that, I said, that was the place I defined myself. I got all my determination to get to be a PhD. I got all of my drive. Nobody could break me. And then they said, so what's it like going through the rest of your life back over backwards? That was the downside of the upside. <laughs> and I realized, oh my God, I had lost my right to assert. It could only be turned inward. It could only, as, as a stubborn rebellion. Mm-hmm. Now it's reclaiming that will. Now to some extent I did, <laughs> because in high school when I got a little bigger, Uh, I read every book by Martin Luther King, and I made sure she saw it. And and we got into these. Now, the funny thing was, is we got into these. uh, Reclaiming your voice from that two-year-old to that seven-year-old was a process. That was my first. Just passive-aggressively, I'm going to read Martin Luther King. And then we got into these arguments. And the funny thing was, is you can't win these arguments with somebody like that. What reason didn't put into a person, reason won't take out. We got to the same place, and what she would say to me is, after I had thoroughly intellectual challenged her, was, "Well, if there's any niggers in heaven, I don't want to be there." What do you think about that, Mr. Smarty Pants, Mr. Yeah. Going to College? At one point, I got wise enough to say, "This is stupid on my part. I will not do this." Years later, though, when I'm 25 and I've got a master's degree, uh, I'm at a family reunion, and all the family are there. I stop in for a couple hours, and she goes on about this. And I figure this time I'm going to trounce her. <laughs> we go through the same thing, and this time I there's no fear of me. I've grown some. I'm a, now I'm a man, right? Um, but you know you're still learning. And the funny thing was, was she says that. Uh, at the end of it. And all the family are going, oh, Mr. College Education, because nobody in my family graduated high school, let alone get a master's. And I remember thinking, what do I say to such a pity? And I looked up to God and I said, oh my God, what do I say? And I hear this voice that kind of says, you've got to think like her. And I'm going, are you nuts? Are you crazy? And then this thought came to me that was so perfect and so wonderful that I said, And I I thought, I don't, I didn't know you thought that way. And I turned and I looked at her and I said, that's okay, mom. There's going to be some in the other place too. (laughs) (laughs) Now, and then later on I learned, it's, it's a, it was, my life was a process of reclaiming my right to assert my truth without the rebellion, the pure, this is my truth, you know, uh, if I were to do it now as who I am after the, you know, the man that doesn't have to bend over backwards, because I was still bending over backwards. I was still playing her game.
0: Right. You know, right. You know, the balance I, wasn't there.
2: Yeah, I was still in her trenches. She was defining the game and I couldn't even see it. Mm-hmm. These days, I would probably say to my mother, I am so sorry that whatever happened to you mm-hmm. made you so afraid of anybody who's different. You know, And I would leave it yeah. at that. It's a, it's a process and so when if you're out there and you're listening to this if you've gone through that physical abuse just start looking for the thing that you did to survive is often your limiting suit as well because bending over backwards the rest of my life was uh, a horrible way to go through my relationships now I can create a full love because I can properly assert and all couples have to assert with each other lest there be, And that was what was kind of big before.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. You know, as with everybody, I'm so sorry you had that experience. And Mm -hmm. as with everybody, it gave you a springboard to being the absolute best you can be because it allowed you to say, I know what I don't want. I know what I don't want to experience and I know what I don't want to pass along. And however long that journey takes us is a worthwhile journey. Wouldn't you agree?
2: Oh, it is. You know, I actually, I look back now, and I realize that some part of me has gained so much. I can sit in the chair, and when I'm with a client, and I can, without projecting, I can have real empathy. I understand it at a granular level, so I can help them navigate it. Uh, it's been a gift. On the other side of, of reclaiming that, what I call a right to a certain, a right to create my own experience, um, you know, whatever what happened back there, there's always a, a deeper purpose that you can find in it, and that becomes the the superlative value of it. Not that we value the experience, but we value the lesson from the experience.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story with me. You know, it reminds me of a little story of my own mom. You know, we're talking about hijackal parents. So and it happened to, to us today. We're talking about hijackal parents. But, you know, I remember my mom used to come home and with these great victories, you know, like I trounced that person or I ruined their day or I told them like it was. And one day she came home and she said, you know, I really took the wind out of her sails. And I heard that repeatedly over my my youth and finally I was about 15 and I had one of those moments of awareness like you had and I just looked at her and I said, you know, I don't know why you're so happy about taking the wind out of her sails when it would be so much easier to take your sail out of her wind.
2: Mm, I love that.
0: (laughs) And my mother did not know what to do with that. You know, just did not what because basically what you were talking about in your learning and what I learned in mine was a kind of non resistance. Yeah. Like there is no point trying to better or fight with or confront this energy. We have to become who we are and these experiences, if we allow them to and if we get the help, will allow us to have the best life possible for ourselves. So thanks so much for sharing your story, Gary.
2: Oh, it's been a pleasure.
0: My guest today is Dr. Gary Salyer. You can learn more about him at GarySalyer.com, dot rcom He is a therapist. He's written books, but he's writing a wonderful book that will be out this year, 2018, called Safe to Love Again. And, you know, whether or not you're writing books and you're a therapist or whether you are anywhere in your life's journey, all of these things apply. Things have happened to us, and we need to acknowledge them. We need to move through them and move on to what's possible for us. And I hope this segment, It Happened to Me, helps you relate to the fact that you're not alone. And if you'd like to tell your story, You can submit it on a form. Just go to forrelationshiphelp.com. That's H-E-L-P, forrelationshiphelp.com, slash submit. Thanks again. And join us for It Happened to Me. I'm so glad you spent this time with me today. I hope you heard something that touched your heart. You can have the life and relationships that you most want, and that begins within you now, today. I'm always here for you. Life can get better. And you heard that from me, the Relationship Help Doctor, Roberta Shaler. I work with clients throughout the world through video conferencing, We Can Talk. Learn more at com. Visit youtube.com slash forrelationshiphelp. And if you want to listen to the show's archives, visit relationshiphelpshow.com. Join me for next week's show. I'll see you then. Talk soon.